This week, we have a very special episode. Here in Oklahoma City, we have the world-renowned Oklahoma Medical Research Foundation. Joining me on this episode were Dr. Gabriel Pardo and Jennifer Smith of OMRS Multiple Sclerosis Clinic. Dr. Pardo has had an impressive career spanning two residencies in ophthalmology and neurology and a fellowship in neuro-ophthalmology. He has been treating multiple sclerosis for over 20 years, but more importantly, he and his team at OMRF remain dedicated to research into the most effective treatments for multiple sclerosis. Jennifer Smith is no less impressive. She has a background in the United States Army that she has transitioned into her role as a physician assistant on the clinical team at OMRF. Our team at Physical has worked with both of their patients and we routinely hear what wonderful clinicians they are. It was my pleasure to have them on. This was my first conversation about a specific diagnosis on the Love Your Life podcast, and I learned a ton. I'm sure I didn't get every question you might have answered, so if you've got some, please reach out to Dr. Pardo, Jennifer, or the rest of the team at OMRF. Welcome back to the Love Your Life podcast. This week we have Dr. Pardo and Jennifer Smith from the Oklahoma Medical Research Foundation in the Multiple Sclerosis Clinic, and uh, I just want to welcome you both here. Thank, Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, super excited. This is our first episode with two live guests, so uh, double the knowledge is going to be dropped on us here, which is awesome. I always start out, um, and you all have kind of two unique stories. We'd love to hear both of your stories and kind of how you got into uh, the field of medicine, and then also how you've ended up now uh, working with patients with multiple sclerosis. Um, I joined the military when I was 18 to be a combat medic and um, started my career there with simple first aid uh, uh, kinds of things and was going to pursue nursing school and then um, in 2004 my unit uh, reserve unit was activated and um, so during my mobilization I met some PAs and they said, you know, you ought to go to PA school. And I thought, eh, it sounds really hard and it sounds like a lot of work. But um, I uh, did the extra work that I needed to do and uh, became a PA for the Army. And um, after I graduated from PA school, I started working. I went back into the reserves. I'd spent some time on active duty. And I went back to um, the reserves and found a job with a civilian neurologist. And um, started just embarking on this journey of the brain and how awesome and complex it is and learned about multiple sclerosis while I was um, working with him. And then um, I met a PA that was working with Dr. Pardo at the time and he was giving me information about MS and it was just a very um, subspecialty type field and so uh, very complex in the middle of an already complex um, specialty. Sure. And so I did some specialized training at UT Southwestern and then um, ended up getting a, a job at OMRF working exclusively with patients and their families that uh, have MS. And it's a, it's a great facility. We get to do research and we get to do patient care. So that's kind of my background. Thank you for sharing that. I, I think that's awesome. Uh, we've talked to the, a few PAs and um, oftentimes they're they're very primary care focused. And so you've got this very specialty niche that you have really dug deep into. So great to hear that, uh, hear about your story for sure. 
What about you there, Dr. Carter? Well, mine is a very long and nerdy story, but yeah. I'm going to make it very short. Uh, after medical school, uh, I trained as an ophthalmologist. I did a residency in ophthalmology. Okay. Uh, and then I found that as good as it was, it was not as intellectually challenging as I wanted it to be. Sure. So I ended up uh, doing additional training, a fellowship in something called neuro-ophthalmology, uh, which is essentially the science evaluating the interaction between the eyes and the brain both how we send information from the eyes to the brain to interpret as vision, as well as the control of the brain of eye movements, which is quite complex. One would never think that, but it's very, very complex. And while doing that fellowship, that additional training, I got exposed to a lot of patients that have multiple sclerosis okay. because MS has a lot of manifestations in the eyes, uh, in both systems, the ones that are sending information to the brain, as well as the brain control of the eye movements. And uh, I just fell in love with the disease. I thought it was fascinating. It was in the early stages of development of the knowledge of the mechanisms of disease and the treatment. Uh, a lot of things were in the horizon that were going to happen and decided that that was it. Uh, so I then did a residency in neurology uh, and I've been doing multiple sclerosis care and research exclusively since 2000. So almost 20 years now. Very good. Yeah. Well, I have to say, as nerdy as that story was, we've had some some big nerds on here. Uh, my best friend uh, from college uh, did an episode with us a few weeks back. Uh, he's a neurotologist down at Tulane, so you know we we like the smart people for sure. So thank you for sharing that. For our listeners out there, um, can you all just tell us a little bit about multiple sclerosis? So for somebody who's listening who maybe has heard about it um, but doesn't really know what the disease entails, can you just Tell us a little bit about what uh, what the manifestation might look like and how it's going to impact the patient. Uh, sure. Uh, the essence of multiple sclerosis is that it is a condition where your own defense mechanisms, the immune system, unfortunately will misrecognize something that belongs to you as something that is foreign and as such needs to be attacked and destroyed. And that encompasses in general what we call the autoimmune diseases. What differentiates one autoimmune disease from the next is the target of that attack. What does the immune system recognize as what is bad and is going to destroy? Uh, in the case of MS, of multiple sclerosis, that target of the attack is myelin, which is the insulation around nerve cells inside what we call the central nervous system. That is the optic nerves, the brain, uh, the spinal cord, essentially. And uh, when that happens, when the immune system uh, comes in contact with the myelin, recognizes as an enemy and destroys that, then it alters the functioning of that part of the brain or spine cord. Uh, the nerve cells work as electrical wires. They send electrical impulses. That's how everything works in our body, uh, commanded by the brain. And uh, when that insulation is disrupted, then the transmission of electrical impulses is disrupted and sure. that area doesn't work well. And that's why patients will have a great variety of manifestations because okay. the location of these areas of attack is completely random. It can be very any strong, part of the right? brain, any yeah. part of the brainstem, any part of the spinal cord. And because each one of those areas will have a specific function, one patient with MS would present with, say, loss of vision out of one eye, while the next patient would present with a put drop on the left. Sure. So extremely different presentations, but one unique, common mechanism of disease. So if someone was worried, you know, what are, what are maybe some common signs or symptoms that somebody would even start down the process of, of trying to say, do I have a diagnosis of MS? What are some things that they might be considering? Uh, the number one problem that brings people eventually into our office is optic neuritis. Um, it's uh, 
demyelination of the optic nerve with inflammation, and that usually presents with blurry vision, usually on one side, it could affect both eyes, but typically one eye is worse than the other. And it's something that evolves over a period of time, and so um, several hours um, where the vision's blurry, maybe when they wake up in the morning, and then throughout the day it may become more blurry. Okay. Um, and then kind of the clincher is it has to stay blurry for at least 24 hours okay. for it to really be considered multiple, uh, an event that can be consistent with multiple sclerosis. A lot of times it takes a very long time to resolve. Um, and so optic neuritis is one of the most common uh, symptoms that we see. And it can present in a couple different ways. So blurry vision, sometimes there's a um, color difference between the two eyes that wasn't there before. Got it. Um, and then... And when you say color, you're not talking about the coloring of the eye, but right. actually the visual perception. Of, yes. So one may appear bluer or greener. Is that kind of how I would, I would think of it? It is, yeah. So vividness, red especially. So there's right. a red color desaturation. Um, so that's one of the most uh, common initial signs of MS. Um, there's a lot of things that are very subtle though, like Dr. Pardo was saying, and it may not capture the patient's attention right away. So um, numbness or tingling um, that's not associated with like sitting on your hand or crossing your legs or some kind of position uh, that your body's been in for a while. And same thing, it has to be, I would say at least 24 hours to really kind of uh, fit the characteristics that we see with multiple sclerosis. And then um, ataxia, or just this really wobbly gait, like a lot of people think of someone that's been drinking alcohol too sure. much, and they have this ataxic gait where they just look like they're kind of struggling with their balance. Um, and then aside from that, there's some more subtle things. What would you add? Well, there's a whole lot of other ones, right? For example, sometimes bladder problems. That one will think of a lot of other conditions before we think so of MS. Uh, and that is perhaps the complexity of the ability to diagnose MS, right? Sure. That the variability in the presentation is so great that sometimes things are uh, being chased down one road ends up being multiple sclerosis sure. once we have more information that will be consistent with the disease. But the key of MS, and I think that's the core component for our ability to diagnose MS, is that it has to, two components. One, it has to involve more than one specific area of the central nervous system. It's not a single event, it has to involve multiple locations, and it has to have the predisposition to repeat itself over time. So what we call separation in space and separation in time. So that, those, that, that constitutes the core of the diagnosis of MS, different from other conditions that can also be demyelinating or have similar presentations, but that will not have that predisposition for new attacks in multiple locations. And is, is, so is that observation of those symptoms, is that the, the core way that you are going to diagnose, or is there any blood testing or genetic testing that goes on as part of that? That is the core. So the history of the diagnosis of MS, we follow a set criteria. Uh, that emphasizes that. And all of our efforts are directed towards confirming the separation in space and separation in time. One and most important, the history, what we hear from the patient that has happened, the clinical information, to our ability to confirm those changes with our examination so sure. that we can verify the fact that we do see changes that correspond to that. But we have a lot of ancillary ways to support the diagnosis. Okay. And the most important one of them all is MRI, magnetic okay. resonance imaging because it's a very sensitive way for us to evaluate with images, the brain and the spinal cord, and will give us a very good detailed uh, uh, image of the location, 
the characteristics, the size, the distribution of potential lesions that are the ones that correspond to the areas of attack and inflammation I was mentioning earlier. And that gives us a whole lot of validity to the diagnosis because it's quite characteristic what we see in the MRI. In addition to that, we can do other tests. We can do spinal taps to look for okay. certain changes in the spinal fluid that will be indicative of an immunological process being responsible for yeah. what's going on and other things like evoke potentials and things like those. But usually we do not need to get to those stages of diagnosis. Usually just the history, the examination, and an MRI will be sufficient. And I would assume, uh, you know, based on uh, kind of our knowledge of the brain and, and the different kind of centers of the brain in terms of uh, movement and vision and so forth, that the MRI is probably really helpful for going on and, and not just the diagnostic, but also any sort of treatment outcomes. Is that accurate as well? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So um, certainly there's certain areas of the brain that we, and central nervous system rather, that we regard as precious real estate. Okay. So if we have a patient that has lesions in their spinal cord, um, lesions in the brain stem, those areas of the brain and, and the spinal cord, they do so much for the body. And if there's a lesion there that's blocking that signal or interfering with the pathway, um, that can kind of tell us that patient may have a more aggressive course of MS down the sure. road. And so um, that can play a lot into our decision-making process when we're trying to figure out what the best treatment option would be for our patient. And then, um, like Dr. Pardo was saying, you know, um, the, the history of what has been happening with the patient, if they've had multiple sure. relapses in a short period of time, um, if they present with um, multiple uh, different areas of the body that are, that are affected at one time, um, all of those things can kind of uh, predict maybe what their future might be, Got although it. it remains a very unpredictable disease. Sure. Sure. And as you were implying, it also has value in our ability to assess to what degree we're effective to treating the disease. Right? Okay. So how do we know that once we diagnose a patient and we start a treatment, uh, which purpose is to reduce the risk of having new events of inflammation, damage, sure. and the consequences that come with that, how do we measure that efficacy, that effectiveness? And we do so by different means. One, of course, primarily clinically, again, is the patient having new episodes of damage or not? Uh, is the patient having progression of established deficits that were there before, but now are getting worse? And also uh, the MRI. Is the okay. MRI showing new lesions, lesions that are active, lesions that are getting larger? All those parameters are used on a regular basis for us to determine we are effective to controlling disease with our intervention or not. And consequently, we need to come up with a different plan. Okay. So you touched on now treatment a little bit. What are some treatment options that are included for uh, an individual with MS? Um, so there are several. Um, it started out with injectable therapies in the early 90s, and um, uh, those are interferons, which interfere sort of with the immune system's um, ability to promote inflammation. And um, then uh, several other treatments have been introduced with a lot of different mechanisms of action. Um, we have medications that are uh, pill form that sort of interfere with the body's ability to maybe mount an attack that would result in an MS relapse. Um, we have medications that sort of limit the trafficking of cells that could get into the brain and cause the attack. And then recently we have um, infusions that um, in one way or the other sort of uh, decide how the immune system is going to behave sure. um, and, res and results in fewer attacks, fewer new lesions, and hopefully better quality of life. So, 
Absolutely. And what Jennifer is mentioning, of course, is the core of the therapy, right? What we call the disease-modifying therapies. How can we alter the evolution of the disease? Sure. But when we look at the management of the disease comprehensively, that is just one component. Sure. It's a very important component, perhaps the paramount component. But uh, the management of MS, the individual with MS, requires a very comprehensive, holistic approach where we uh, go beyond that and we identify all the other potential manifestations that happen with disease and we act upon those. And there's a lot of different modalities that can be implemented depending on what are the deficits that are established. So, you know, we can give a series of examples, but essentially if the patient has bladder dysfunction, uh, we understand what type of bladder problems they have. We can intervene with behavioral modifications or even medication settings that improve the symptom. If the patient has balance issues or weakness issues with the legs and gait dysfunction, can physical therapy be a modality sure. with which we can make a change? So uh, depending on what are the manifestations for a given patient, we have to include a lot of other approaches to improve the quality of life, which is ultimately what we're going after. Absolutely, absolutely. Along those lines, uh, things like diet and exercise are pretty common across the board. Are there risk factors either for development and onset of MS or uh, worsening progression? Yes, definitely. So um, as far as uh, like maybe modifiable activities a patient's doing, smoking is a big no-no with MS as it is with many other disease processes. Um, so patients that smoke that have MS uh, tend to have a worse course down the road. Uh, if they stop smoking, then that's a modifiable um, part of something they can change and, sure. and hopefully improve uh, outcomes down the road. Vitamin D is one that we have identified uh, patients that have low vitamin D that do not get uh, treated tend to have a worse prognosis down the road. Um, so those are two things that, that come to mind. Absolutely. There are things you cannot modify, like sure. your gender, right? Sure. So uh, gender-wise, for example, MS is much more common in females, okay. but males tend to have more aggressive course. Okay. So if you're a male, uh, well, you cannot change that. Uh, genetics and race they also play a role, okay. and those are, of course, unmodifiable, okay. right? But there are a whole lot of things that you can modify. You can uh, certainly make a, a difference if you intervene and make a change. A healthy lifestyle overall is very good, and not only because every physician will tell you do not smoke, sure. exercise, keep your weight under control, but uh, because in general that makes sense. But specifically, MS they have been studied, and they make a difference, a significant difference, as Jennifer was mentioning. There is no doubt from the studies that have been done that an individual with MS that smokes will have a much worse prognosis and evolution than the same patient with MS that does not smoke. So, so there's a direct influence of that. Uh, as it, uh, respect, uh, with respect to diets, we have little information that is valid from a scientific perspective, aside from the fact to mention again that if you lead a healthy lifestyle and you control your weight, that's going to be good, not only for your quality of life and your well-being, but also a direct effect on the immune system, which sure. essentially is what's the problem here. So uh, approaching life with, with a good mentality, with a, you know ability to uh, be willing to modify those things that are not conducive to uh, health overall is going to be beneficial. Absolutely. They're doing some really interesting work right now with the gut microbiome. Okay. And they study poop samples, basically. Um, I don't know if people find this interesting, but um, it's interesting to me. My kids listen to a podcast on dinosaur poop. So, okay. yeah, there okay. we go. 
So um, I sometimes I'll tell patients about that to kind of just give them hope and let them know, you know, no stone is being left unturned. Like literally people will go through poop samples to see what the immune pattern patterns can look like in sure. guts of MS folks and people without MS because a large part of the immune system is actually derived in the gut. Um, and so, um, so we do, I think, uh, as that evolves, we will have more information about diet and, and how that can play a bigger role into maybe even modifying the immune response sure. and, uh, promoting maybe less of an immune response that would attack and cause all the difficulty MS causes. So awesome. Well, I, you guys are certainly on the forefront. I, I didn't realize, uh, how, how short a time span. Uh, that we've been working on MS, but to, to bring up the interferon drugs from the early 90s. You have been at the cutting edge essentially the whole time here, for sure. Um, sadly, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> means that I've been around for quite some time. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't my intention. That's, but that's the sad part of it. <laughs> but it's been exciting because I've seen the evolution of everything. Absolutely. So, you know, historically, when I got interested in MS, I mentioned that it was while doing my fellowship uh, in neuroophthalmology. That was the very year when the first medication for MS came. Uh, available. Uh, so again, that sparked my interest. And now, um, this many years later, we now have more than 15 medications. And I think that is what, what is even more interesting is that now we're getting much better at doing what we do, which is reduce the risk of new problems, information damage, right? But we are already taking it to the next frontier in MS, and that is how can we induce repair? Yeah. Right. Uh, is it possible to do so? And, and that concept in itself was scientific heresy just a few years ago. Sure. Nobody would conceive that it was a possibility. And now we have multiple different avenues that are very solid scientifically that are offering us the possibility, we do not know that yet, it's been studied, sure. but the possibility of regenerating either myelin, which has been directly damaged, or even the nerve cell that is damaged secondarily from the attack. And if we're able to do that, of course, we open the doors to a lot of potential recovery rehabilitation sure. that is much more meaningful for those individuals who already have fixed deficits. Moving from treatment to cure, essentially. Yeah. Hopefully. Uh, absolutely, yes. absolutely. It's still, yes. still in the early stages, but at least, uh, at least uh, some uh, hope it, to it, it's been done. Yes. It's been done. So, I mean, there's, like, as I mentioned, multiple different avenues were being part of some of those initiatives, and it's very exciting. That's awesome. Well, I'm super, super excited to have y'all here in Oklahoma and, and being on the forefront of that for sure. And any myths or rumors around MS that y'all would want to dispel at all? Um, so in the summertime, um, the heat here in Oklahoma, it can get quite hot. And uh, so one thing I try to encourage patients to do is, of course, stay hydrated and stay cool. Um, when they were first... Um, kind of trying to diagnose MS, one of the ways that they would try to diagnose it would be to dump a patient. This was, gosh, yeah. a century ago at least. <sighs> they would dump a patient in hot water um, okay. and then they would take him out and they would see if these symptoms emerged. And then as the patient cooled down, they would try to see if the symptoms would resolve. And um, so that's Utah's phenomenon. And um, we see that with our patients today. Somebody that's had optic neuritis in the past where they've had maybe blurry vision and one eye, maybe that it was 2080 to kind of give a rough measurement in that eye. And then as time went on, the inflammation subsided. Sure. Uh, perhaps that patient regained most or all of their vision. So now in that eye, they're seeing 2025. Um, if they go out on a hot run on a, a really hot day and they get overheated, then maybe that vision will start to degrade again and get really blurry and go back to, uh, you know, less than 2025, like 2060 or something. Sure. 
Um, the good news is that is short-lived if it is Utah's phenomenon. So if they cool down and the vision resolves, then that's good news that, hey, look, this is not a relapse. Sure. Um, it lasted for a short period of time. It was associated with being a specific event. For yeah. Sure. It's something that you've experienced in the past. Um, and really that time frame kind of becomes crucial again. So less than 24 hours okay. and we can go back and attribute it to an event of overheating. Um, so, uh, we always want our patients to let us know if there's anything new or different going on symptom wise, but that's one area where we can kind of dispel some, some myths and rumors. Hey, look, it, it just happened this one time when you were overheated, it got better within a short amount of time when you cooled down. So that can be really reassuring to a patient. Probably so, really important when you're talking treatment, that somebody doesn't come in and it's not working. It's uh, not, absolutely. Yeah. got an attributable event. And, and there are other circumstances when which your body temperature can be high and you might not think of that. You know, clearly if you go rock out running in a hot day, it's, it's obvious, right? Sure. But you can have a low grade fever yeah. from an indolent infection. And that can raise the temperature sure. in your body, and it has the same effect. So, so that's one of the things that we always do. As Jennifer was mentioning, it's very important for us to differentiate between a true relapse, meaning there's a new event of inflammation and damage, versus a pseudo relapse. Looks like one, but it's only the resurfacing of old symptoms yeah. because we have changed the environment at which things are working. There are other myths, of course, uh, sure. regarding MS. Uh, you cannot catch it. People can right. think you, you might catch MS. Uh, mm -hmm. It is not an infectious disease. It's, sure. it's an immune-mediated disease. And I'm not saying that perhaps some infectious agents might not play a role in the development of MS. It's not something that you're going to catch as such as a sure. disease itself. Sure. So you cannot catch it. Uh, it is uh, genetic, but it's not inherited. And there's okay. a difference between the two. And by that, I mean that uh, genetics, yes, play a role. Uh, genomics, we inherit from our parents, sure. our genetic uh, components. And um, there are over 200 genes that have been identified as increasing the risk for having MS. There's not one single gene that I can test you to see if you have sure. it or not. It's a variety of them. Uh, but that alone would not give you the disease. A lot of other things can need to come into place Got for it. someone to develop MS. And we have not figured that out. We have some leads as of what those might be. Uh, but the fact that you have a family member with MS does not mean that you will have MS. Actually, the risk is quite low. Yeah. It's higher if you have an identical twin with MS. Okay. So if you look at numbers, for example, the general population, the incidence, the frequency at which we see MS is lower, to 0.1%. Uh, if you have a first degree relative with MS, a parent, a sibling, then that goes up to 1% to 2%, which is a significant jump, sure. but still very, very low. We do not test people that have family members with MS and things of that nature. But if you have an identical twin and your genomic component is the same, identical, right, uh, and one of them has MS, then the risk for the other one is around 30%. Oh, so, so, quite so, a bit higher. Quite a bit higher. So we know that genetics play at least a third of the role in the development of the disease, sure. but that alone will not give you MS. Sure. That's a, really great information to have to start to be able to rule certain things out. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Let's kind of wrap up with, uh, if a new patient was coming in to OMRF to, to see y'all, what would be the top three things that you'd want to know so that they can have the best experience and the best treatment outcomes? I would say number one, um, history. Uh, if they can come in with a really good timeline of events, like you know, when I was 20, I experienced this and it lasted for this long and then did it resolve, did it improve, or sure. did it stay a deficit? 
um, that is immensely helpful. Uh, and patients sometimes, um, they can, you know, forget about these minor things, but um, the more information they bring, the more we're able to really start to figure out, you know, the mystery and make sure that, you know, is this MS or is it something else? So I would say a, a good history. Oh, absolutely. So uh, I agree completely. So if there are three things that we need, details, details, details. Uh, yeah. Because as, as we were talking about earlier, the main component for the diagnosis is the, is the history. And we get the history from the patient. If you do not come prepared to the visit with the information that we need, it's a very long and painful visit trying to remember that. And it's not uncommon for us to be sitting with the patient and family members and we ask them specific questions. When did you have the episode of blur vision? Sure. Mm, was it my senior? No, it was not my senior year. It was the year that Aunt Mary came. No, it was not Aunt Mary. And then we are just kind of spending time and spinning our wheels trying to get basic information. So come and prepare for the visit with all the pertinent information, the history, the timeline, the days at which things happen. And if you already have an established diagnosis of MS, when did you start treatment? Which treatment? For how long? Why did you switch? Why was it stopped? Sure. All those things are going to give us information that we need to provide good care from the own. If we understand what has happened, what is going on right now, we can set a roadmap for the future. In absence of that, we're going blind. We do not like to do that. Sure. Sure. Anything that we haven't touched on that you would like either a potential patient or a family member of a potential patient to know? Um, I would say first and foremost, um, MS is no longer your grandmother's MS. It has evolved so much. I mean, even in the short time that I've been involved with um, the MS Center, um, I've seen a lot of changes and all for the better, in my opinion, as far as um, the efficacy of the drugs that we can offer now versus even um, what was available when I graduated from PA school. Um, our knowledge about MS um, and, you know, the, the hope for patients that, hey, if you're newly diagnosed um, and we can treat you very close to when you first had this whatever neurological event sure. that started this whole process, you have a, a really good opportunity um, and a really good expectancy that, that it won't get as bad as what some people think of when they think MS. Sure. Um, and so I would say just the um, prognosis in general has has improved drastically since I've gotten involved. So could not agree more. That's yeah. exactly it. If anybody wanted to reach out to either of you or to OMRF in general, is there a way that they can do that? Yeah. Um, Absolutely. I mean, uh, the Oklahoma Medical Research Foundation, as of general, it's an institution that does research. It has a clinical component. We're part of that. So the OMRF Multiple Sclerosis Center of Excellence is where we're housed. Uh, it's a dedicated facility, 7,000 square feet of handicap accessible, uh, dedicated space just for the treatment of these multiple sclerosis. And they can find us uh, online. Uh, we're there. Perfect. Thank you both for being here on the Love Your Life podcast. Perfect. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Love Your Life podcast. We hope it helps you take the next step in your healthcare journey. If you loved it, share it on social media. Give us a review in your podcast player of choice or drop us a line about a topic you want covered. I'd like to thank our sponsor, Physical Therapy and Balance Centers of Oklahoma City. Physical, F-Y-Z-I-C-A-L. Physical, spelled different because we are different. I'd also like to thank our producer, Julia Burwell, and Elise Collier for her fabulous intro. The Love Your Life podcast is meant for informational purposes 
but should never replace the individualized advice of your medical professional. If you need advice, speak directly with a healthcare provider.